Anybody else tired? No. no? Dave, I don't think you're ever tired. I don't think you sleep. You got too much energy, brother. Man, this, uh, these last couple of weeks have uh, just been crazy. And, uh, you know, every, there's just seasons, right, where everybody's just tired. Um, I remember going to a conference a couple years ago, and I was looking at it, it was like a four-day conference. And I'm looking over, you had the main session, you had the breakout sessions, and, and there was a breakout session called The Theology of Napping. And I was like, ooh, that sounds good. I'm like, what is that? And I started, you know, digging into it, and ends up, it was literally a room with dim lights, soft music, and comfortable pillows and blankets so you could go nap in the middle of this conference. There was no teaching whatsoever. It was just a place of silence and solitude. And I was joking with Fabiana this morning, like, we're going to do an hour of theology of napping this morning for church. Just experience the spiritual discipline of silence and solitude. Um, maybe someday, but not, not this morning. Uh, so we are in our second week of a teaching series called Echoes, and uh, our lead pastor, Bill White, and Dan Haney uh, team taught last week and kind of set the stage for us. They talked about the Reformation history, and I know everybody was super excited to hear that we're going to do six weeks on church history. <laughs> that was my experience in high school, right? You tell you, I'm, I got American history, I got world history, like, oh my Seriously, that was theology of napping, like their thanks to public public school education, right? I did not enjoy history until like college, and then I started enjoying American history, and then became a pastor and started to study church history, and and didn't realize how significant church history still impacts us today in ways that, that we never even think about, we never realize. And so last week. Uh, we started talking about um, the difference between the Catholic and the Protestant church, and, and I feel like Pastor Bill and, and Dan Haney did a good job of laying that, but I want to continue that so that you understand, like, we are not bashing the Catholic church. You will never hear us do that here at Great Oaks. We owe the American, the, not the American church, but the global church owes its existence today to the large C Catholic church, which in history rose up to defend itself against um, oppression and tyranny and all these things. And, and so it formed into from the small C Catholic church, which just means universal, to large C Catholic church with an organization with the Pope over it and all the bishops and priests and everything that come with that. And then over time, we, we encounter Martin Luther, who uh, began this, what we now call the Reformation. And saw some things in the Catholicism that he, he didn't really agree with. And, and it started with what we're talking about today, his diving into Scripture. And uh, so his goal, though, was to never abolish the Catholic Church. That's why, he called it, that's why they called it a reformation. He wanted to reform the Catholic Church. What happened as a result of his efforts is there was a split. And we have the, the Catholic Church and we have the Protestant Church. And, and obviously we are here today as a Protestant Church. Uh, but I'll never bash the Catholic Church. We may disagree with each other theologically at times. And, and on some pretty significant things. I'm not even going to sugarcoat that. There's some significant things that we would disagree with. Uh, but you won't hear me bash them. And, and for several reasons. Number one, uh, this picture. This is my first cousin. He's a Catholic priest. Uh, he grew up in L.A., um, grew up in a Catholic family, went to um, UCLA, got a bachelor's degree in philosophy of religion, uh, felt called to go into ministry. ministry. And so in, in Catholic family, he was called to the priesthood, which meant there were some significant vows that he had to take. When he was in seminary, the, he, early on, they had to take three vows, a vow of poverty, a vow of celibacy, and a vow of obedience. And the catchphrase in seminary was, no money, no honey, and always say yes. 
But over the years, we've had a lot of really good conversations about that. And I mean, I pointed out, you know, if you're a Protestant pastor, you could have a, a marriage, you could have a wife, and all the benefits that come with that, right? And uh, we'll just figure that one out later, right? But uh, he is now in a, a, a diocese up in Chicago, which you'd think means I get to see him often, but I don't. We actually hardly ever get to see each other. Uh, but we've had some great theological conversations over the years on differences between Catholic theology and Protestant theology. Uh, you also won't hear me bash the Catholic Church because my wife grew up Catholic. Her father was Catholic and grew up, raised her and her brother going to the Catholic Church. Um, that was a very significant part of her childhood and spiritual development, uh, laid a foundation for who she became later in life as a, as a Protestant. Uh, we're, we're from, she's from a, a Polish Catholic family. I mean, her maiden name in Polish is Tohowicz. Uh, we, we say Stakowitz. Um, I think genders is a lot easier to say than Stakowitz. <laughs> but then we've got Jess Jocks in there, which is like G-R-Z-R-Z-Z-Z-R-Z-Y, something. I don't know. It's, it's really difficult. And, uh, but, you know, she became a Protestant when she was around 18. And that was a little interesting for her family. Uh, but then she met me. And we got married, and we had a, a Protestant wedding, which actually her aunt said it was the most beautiful wedding she'd ever been to. Um, out of all the Catholic weddings, all the masses she'd ever been to, it was the most beautiful wedding ceremony she'd ever been to. And then we had a child. Ethan came along. Ethan was born December 4th. And as a Protestant, we don't believe in infant baptism. But Karen, knowing her family, said, this is going to come up. And every year on Christmas Eve at that time in, in our family's history, uh, we got everybody together and it was a big deal and we had a big fancy dinner together and everything. And she's like, they're going to ask. And I'm like, I know, but it's your family. So congratulations, you get to answer that one. <laughs> and so we're sitting at dinner table. There's like 15, 16 of us all sitting around, like all the matriarchs and patriarchs of the family, like generations of, of Catholics at the table. And they said, hey, we're, Ethan is so adorable, he's so cute, I don't know what happened, um, but so adorable, so cute, when's his baptism? And Karen goes, Chris? I'm like, seriously, you just threw me under the bus. So I went on to explain that, that we don't practice infant baptism, and the looks on their eyes, it was like I was an alien. They had never heard such things, and they, they would have labeled it heresy based on their Catholic tradition. But I have a lot of respect for where they're at and where they're from, and so I'm not going to bash that. In fact, there's a lot of things I love um, about going to a Catholic mass or a high Lutheran or, or a Presbyterian mass. And this picture is a picture of uh, the cathedral downtown Peoria, which you've ever been to. It's just a beautiful building. I mean, when I walk into a church like that, immediately I, I enter into a moment of reverence in my relationship with God, Right? Something you don't get when you walk into Great Oaks. I walk in and I'm like overwhelmed by how majestic God is. I, I'm reminded that God is a God of history, not just now, but history, centuries. People have been following Jesus and studying this book that I study, uh, following in the traditions or leading in the traditions that I'm now following. I, I, I see the, the statues and I see the stained glass and it, it takes me to a sense of awe that I don't get when I walk into a church like Great Oaks. And yet, when I walk into Great Oaks, I get the sense that God is present and God is relevant and God is familiar and God is approachable, right? I, I, I want both. Like, I, I, I want this church service in a Catholic cathedral, right? I don't think that they would ever let us do that. But, um, 
it'd be a little weird. It'd it'd be similar to what many people who come from a Catholic tradition experience when they come in to Great Oaks for the first time. It's like what I experienced when I became a Christian in college, and I went to a a campus ministry, and they had drums and their guitars going, and they're singing and they're clapping, and I'm like, you guys are freaks. Like, this is not Christianity. This is not how you do church. Y'all are going to hell. This is not good, right? We get that here at Great Oaks. I didn't tell this story last service, but second service, so I can go long as long as I want, right? Um, There's nothing after this. So a few years ago, when we first started doing Christmas Eve services, um, we did the first one, and it was really well attended, and and it went long. And we're like, oh, man, we we got to make this a little smoother, cut some things out, expedite the process of the service, because families got to go. They want to come in. They want to worship. They want to go back to their families and celebrate Christmas. And so we had, as Protestant pastors, the genius idea that we would take communion, and rather than pass communion in trays or set it on tables and, and make it this, you know, set-apart, reverent thing, uh, we got those little cups that are really annoying to open, right? But they're little cups that have the juice and then a, a layer of cellophane and then the piece of bread and then the layer of cellophane, right? And you spill it all over yourself when you're open. It's just, it's just a mess. Well, we thought, hey, we want to make the service go a little smoother, so we're sitting in Creative arts, and creative arts planning service, and we're like, hey, why don't we just put the communion on the floor under the chairs so that we don't have to pass them, right? We don't just save a little time. We didn't think anything of it, right? So we do church, Christmas Eve service that night. Oh my goodness. The amount of phone calls, emails, and comments we got from people who grew up Catholic and maybe still were family of people that are still practicing Catholic, they came in and we put the body and blood of Jesus Christ on the floor under their butts, right? For a Catholic, that was heresy. I mean, Catholics believe in, in what we call transubstantiation, where the communion literally becomes the body and blood of Jesus Christ, which is why they, they can't just uh, pour it down any drain, why the priest, you'll see, finish the bread or finish the wine, or they, they build new churches, new, new Catholic mass, uh, cathedrals uh, with a special drain to pour the, the wine down into because it can't mingle with any other plumbing in the building because it is sacred. It is literally the body and blood of Jesus Christ is what they believe. And woo, wow, we heard that loud and clear. And so although we disagree with that theology as a church, out of respect for our, the Catholic heritage of people in the church as well as guests, we have never done that ever again. Because we, we want to respect maybe a tradition that we, we wouldn't agree with the, theologically, but out of respect, we want to do that. And so you will never hear me bash Catholicism. We're going to disagree at times. I'll, I'll be the first one to say that. Um, but you're not going to hear me bash it. Now, Church history, as I said, many of us may not get real excited. We may not think, what relevance can church history have on us today? The reality is, is the fact that you're sitting here today on a Sunday is thankful, is, is due to church history. Uh, prior to the 4th century, when Constantine legalized Christianity, uh, church was practiced in homes on Saturdays. Uh, thanks to our Jewish heritage, right? You read the Old Testament, the early the Gospels, they were meeting in the homes, It wasn't until Constantine legalized Christianity and said, hey, we need to gather at the same time that other religions do, which is on Sunday, and we need cathedrals, we need buildings, and we need priests, and we need people officiating things. You know, we can't have these house churches and house leaders that don't have formal theological training. We got to do this. And so he changed history. And we sit here today on a Sunday, thankfully, due to church, not thankfully, that's not the right word, but we, we sit due to church history. 
some of our, our holidays are built around church history, and you don't even know it. St. Saint, Saint, uh, Nicholas was a 4th century bishop. Uh, he was the patron saint, I love this, patron saint of sailors and merchants. All right, cool, I'm good with that. Archers, all right, that's a little more interesting. Um, repentant thieves, not just any old thief. Like, you've got to be a repentant thief to call St. Nicholas your patron saint. Uh, he was the patron saint of children, uh, brewers, some of you are thankful for that, uh, pawnbrokers, and students in various cities and countries around Europe. Only Europe, no other continent. I don't know why. But he grew up the son of wealthy parents, and they died when he was very young. He grew up with his uncle, who was a bishop. Uh, he, he traveled at one point throughout Jerusalem and the surrounding region and, and ended up becoming the bishop of, Myrna, of Myra. Uh, he actually attended the first council of Nicaea, which is where we get the Nicene Creed. He was one of the signers of the Nicene Creed. And he was so passionate about scripture and so passionate about theology that, that any time heresy was presented, he was going to confront it. In fact, at the Nicene Council, another council member was proposing what, what St. Nicholas knew as heresy. And it got St. Nicholas so riled up that he jumped up, ran across the council room, and decked the guy. Like, this is a church meeting, right? Like, we're getting down to fistfights over God. That's awesome. And St. Valentine. St. Valentine was a, a Roman priest in the 4th century, or, or I'm sorry, 3rd century. Um, he, he was known by the emperor Claudius, and, and Claudius liked him well enough, but at one point St. Valentine was arrested, and he made the mistake of trying to convert Claudius to Christianity, and Claudius was having nothing to do with that. And he, he said, you need to, Valentine, you need to recant your faith in Jesus Christ. Valentine said, I can't. I'm not going to recant my faith in Jesus Christ. Claudius says, if you don't recant, he said, you're going to be tortured and probably killed. And Valentine said, I, if that's what has to happen. And so he was, ended up getting um, stoned and then beaten by clubs. And that didn't kill him, so they beheaded him. And this historically happened on February 14th, 269 A.D. Happy Valentine's Day. Here's a beheading card, right? St. <laughs> Patrick. We got St. Patrick's Day coming up pretty soon. Uh, St. Patrick grew up actually in Britain. He's not from Ireland. Some of you are like, what? Really? Like, he, Rome owned Britain at this time, but he grew up in a, in a family there, but he was at the age of 16 captured by Irish pirates. I don't know what that means exactly, but uh, people from Ireland were pirates, and they, they invaded Britain, and they captured um, who became St. Patrick um, and took him off to Ireland. And at 16, he was a slave in Ireland. He was there for six years. So from 16 to 22, he was a slave, and he was, he was tasked with taking care of animals. Uh, at the age of 22, he escaped. He traveled over 200 miles on foot to a port, convinced a ship's captain to give him board back to Britain, where he traveled again, ran into some problems as he traveled, but eventually made it back home to his family. Well, he became a cleric, a priest, and God called him to go back to Ireland, the land of his enslavement, and become a missionary to those people. And out of his love for God and his devotion to his faith, he went back to the land of his enslavement and became the missionary. And, and he is credited uh, today with the fact that Christianity exists in Ireland. is because St. Patrick went there. So as we talk about church history, like this is very real stuff. We stand on the shoulders of men and women who for centuries have built up to the point where we have the freedom to do what we do here today. And so as we talk for the next five weeks, we're going to get into what Dan introduced last week, um, the five solas. Uh, and those are scripture alone, grace alone, faith alone, 
Christ alone and glory to God alone. Um, I'm going to teach these first two weeks, and Pastor Dan, our children's pastor, is going to teach in, in two weeks the third lesson, and then Pastor Bill's going to close this out. Now, I, I just got to tell you, there, there's nothing like, this is just a different kind of message today. This isn't the, you know, we're going to tell a lot of jokes, we're going to get you motivated, we're going to get you laugh, we're going to make you cry, all that kind of stuff. This is like foundational stuff. There's nothing glamorous about getting a shovel, digging out a foundation of a house, and getting the cornerstones exactly level and where you need to get them, right? But if you get these wrong, the house leans to one side or the other. And so we're going to spend five weeks talking about these five cornerstones um, of our Christian faith. Today is all about Scripture. Uh, Who calls the shots in your life? Who has authority over you? Uh, Some of you in the room, you're younger, and you go, oh, my parents, teachers, coaches, right? When they say jump, I jump. I do what they tell me to do. If I don't, I get in trouble. Uh, Some of you are going, yeah, it sounds like my boss, right? Like, I, I, I got to submit to my boss. Uh, some of the men in here, like, the first thing that went through your head was my wife, you know? Many of us are submitting to the government. We're paying our taxes, right? We all submit. We all yield our rights and responsibilities to other entities. Sometimes they're people. For us as followers of Jesus, one of the first things that should come to mind is this book. That, that we submit and we yield our life to what we find in the scriptures. Now, I understand that in this room are people who don't follow Jesus yet. And I want to talk to you for a second, because what oftentimes happens is you encounter Christians, and we, as followers of Jesus, put on you expectations and responsibilities that we find in Scripture that we think you should be following. But you're going, that's not my book. I never said yes to that book. I never said yes to your God. So why are you putting beliefs and practices and behaviors on me? And as followers of Jesus, guys, we got to stop that. When you encounter people who aren't followers of Jesus, you can't expect them to live by this book. But once you say yes to this book, that's a whole other territory. In fact, I've encountered many, many people who are not followers of Jesus, and they say words similar to these. I'm going to paraphrase, but I had a couple of people say this. If I become a Christian, then I'm no longer in control of my life. I don't get to call the shots. They recognize the deep truth of what I'm teaching you today, that when we say yes to Jesus... We no longer are in control. We surrender our rights and our responsibilities to God. Now, that's a whole other sermon on another day. Not, not the surrendering, but the Christian and non-Christian. I want to talk to you today about the scripture alone. Uh, what, what happened with Martin Luther was as he was a Catholic priest, and as he dove into scripture and started studying it, he discovered some things that were he disagreed with, with the Catholic Church, with the priests and the Pope in particular. And, and what he found was that the Catholic Church had said the words of the Pope, the words of the bishops, the priests, uh, oftentimes were given more weight than the scriptures themselves. And as he read scripture and he was convicted by, by God, he's like, that's not right. Like we, it's not that we can't listen to men and women, and, and, but scripture has to be the ultimate authority, right? Uh, we all learn from extra biblical materials. I'm not going to deny that. We all learn about God from extra-biblical materials. Here's, here's some books that I've been reading or finished reading recently. Um, Awe by Paul David Tripp. Phenomenal book um, that I'm in the middle of right now. Just uh, taking you back to living and breathing and functioning in an, in a, an everyday sense of awe of God. Right? Uh, just changing perspective on how I view the world around me. Putting things in perspective for me. Uh, 
Um, the, the book With by Skye Jathani, a uh, phenomenal book. He talks about how we relate to God so often as, as mankind. And he says oftentimes we, we, we relate to God from a, a from God or under God or over God or for God position. But he said all throughout scripture, God says, I want to be with you. That's, what I'm, that's why I sent Jesus. That's why I restored this relationship. Because I want to be with you as mankind. Genesis to Revelation, God is with us. And that book has done a phenomenal job of helping me understand that. Echoes of Reformation, uh, the book that we're basing this sermon series on. Uh, phenomenal to help me understand more about the Reformation history and the five solas, which you know, I'd studied before, but this helped go a little deeper into it. So I'm not going to say that we can't read extra-biblical materials. I want you to read these books. I want you to read commentaries. I want you to, to read devotionals. I want you to listen to pastors and, and go online. I mean, we have so many resources available to us today as modern-day Christians to help us understand this book. But those things are not more important than this book. They don't weigh any heavier. In fact, they're much less authority in our life than this book alone. 2 Timothy chapter 3 says, all scripture is God-breathed. I love that word. God-breathed and is useful for, for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness. So the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. Uh, the Greek there for, for uh, the, the God-breathed is theonoustos. Literally means breathed out by God. Which when you go back to Genesis and you, you read about the creation of the world, how did God create the world? He spoke it into existing. He breathed it out. We think about John chapter 1 and Jesus, uh, it tells us that, John tells us that Jesus came as the Word. The Word became flesh and made his dwelling among us, right? God, Jesus as the Word. The scripture is God-breathed. Now, uh, theologians have been mixed for centuries about what does this mean exactly? Does this mean that the writers of the Bible, that God gave them literally every word to say and they had no choice but to write down those exact words? Or does it mean that, that he gave them ideas and thoughts and inspiration, but allowed them um, as mankind to, to write out the rest of it? We're not going to settle that debate today. We're not even going to get into that debate today, right? Um, but what I will say is I love what Jeremiah uh, says at the beginning of his book. It says, behold, and this is God speaking, behold, I have put my words in your mouth. And I think there, there's something we've got to wrestle with there as we think about all of the authors of these 66 books, how did God give those words? We don't know, but God gave them these words to say. And as a result, they have authority over us more so than any other extra-biblical materials. I, I love what, what Hebrews says because Scripture is life-changing. It's transformative. It's different than any other book you'll ever read. It says, For the word of God is alive and active, sharper than any double-edged sword. It penetrates even to dividing soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It judges the thoughts and attitudes of the heart. Nothing in all creation is hidden from God's sight. Everything is uncovered and laid bare before the eyes of him to whom we must give account. So, if we're building our house on the foundation of these five solas, how do we build our house on scripture alone? What does that look like? Uh, easy to say, difficult to do. Okay, let's just be honest. Number one, we have to know the scripture. The Bible has to become the primary source for your knowledge and understanding of God. More so than any other resource, more so than any other uh, sermon, any other book, any extra biblical material, commentary, devotional, whatever. The Bible has to be the primary source through which everything you're understanding about God, everything gets filtered. It, it, is, it is what you run everything through. I remember 
um, years ago, we did a series with the students called Supernatural, and, and I referred back to this series a couple times, but it was, it was really inspiring and challenging series to do. Uh, and we, we basically, the students want to talk about the supernatural reality of God. And so we want to talk about kind of point, counterpoint, God, Satan, heaven, hell, angels, demons, right? Todd Shire helped me. He got, did you take all the good, all the, the light? You took the bad. I, I, whew, that was good delegation. I handed off, you know, Satan, demons, and, you know, hell to Todd. There you go. Thank you, Todd. Um, <laughs> but we, as we taught this six-week series, what we discovered was a lot of the students had based their theology of supernatural on a TV show called Supernatural, which you can still see on TV today. And, and it came up because as we would ask questions and, and we would talk about things, some of the students would be like, well, you know, but angels are really like this. And Todd and I are like, well, that's not what the Bible says. Like, where'd you get that? Well, it says so in Supernatural, the TV show. And I'm like, oh, okay. Like, Supernatural, probably a good show to start the conversation, but this ends the conversation, right? We have to run it through this filter. Uh, years ago, it was The Da Vinci Code. Uh, great book. Dan Miller, phenomenal writer, but it's a work of fiction. But it was enough theology mixed in there that people were like, oh, maybe, yes, no, I don't know, you know. Currently, it's The Shack. I mean, let's just talk about that a little bit, right? Uh, William Young wrote the book The Shack. Phenomenal book, writing. I mean, I read it years ago. I reread it again this week. If you're going through a time of suffering and pain, you're going to have a lot of questions. And, and he does a great job of just starting to, to start that conversation. Unfortunately, if you don't know Scripture, if you haven't been in this and you don't have a discerning spirit, you're going to take his words as truth, as theology. And friends, you've got to evaluate. The same author went on to write a book recently called Lies We Believe About God. And he counteracts core doctrinal beliefs that Christianity is founded on. Here, here's, here's some uh, statements that others made about that book, Lies We Believe About God. Uh, he teaches universalism, uh, that we don't need to be saved, that everybody's going to end up in heaven. Love wins. He denies the reality of hell. He, he tinkers with the, the fatherhood of God. He denies that sin separates us from God. He scoffs at the, the sovereignty of God, that God is in control. He denies the atonement which is that Jesus Christ's death, burial, and resurrection restored us back into right relationship with God. Friends, that is heresy. And if you're reading the shack right now and you're reading it as accurate theology, you're reading it wrong. I'm not here to, to you know, mince words on that. I'm not saying don't read it. But I'm saying read it with a discerning spirit. Read it and run it through the filter of Scripture. You guys know that I'm an outdoorsman, and so I love getting out in the woods and backpacking and all that kind of stuff. And when you're out in the middle of the nowhere, you know, you don't have a water tap that you can tap into and fill your canteen. So you got to get water from somewhere, right? So it's rivers, streams, creeks, lakes. Sometimes it's really sketchy water sources. And so you've always got a water filter with you uh, that you put the water in and you pump it through, and it gets rid of all of the junk that's in the water that's going to harm you. We have to do the same thing. When we read books like The Shack or The Da Vinci Code or, or watch Supernatural or even when we, we listen to other preachers, including myself, you have to run it through the filter of Scripture to see, is this accurate? I'm going to get rid of all of the things that don't match up with what the Bible says so that I can be a, 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 a student of Scripture and, and be confident in what the Bible says. Luke talks about this in, in Acts. He commends this practice. In Acts 17, he says this, now the, Bereans were, or the, now the Berean Jews were of more noble character than those in Thessalonica, for they received the message with great eagerness and examined the scriptures every day to see if what Paul said 
was true. Friends, I want you, when we preach on Sunday mornings, I want you to go home and wrestle with it. I want you to go home and look at it through Scripture and say, was Chris accurate in that? Because I'm a human being. Every pastor that you will ever encounter that preaches is a human being. We are not God. So our understanding of Scripture is limited. Our understanding of God is limited. And if you don't understand that, you're just going to take everything we say as, as gospel truth. Friends, there's only one gospel truth, and that's in this. So I want you discerning everything you read, everybody you encounter through this lens. This is one of the major issues that Martin Luther felt compelled to address during the Reformation. Uh, he says prior to that, uh, the priests were the only ones who had access to the scriptures. And unfortunately, there were some abuses that were happening in the church as a result. They realized that they could influence the, the masses of people by saying, this is what the Bible says and this is what it means. And the people went, well, we can't read it, so we're trusting you. And so when he was in hiding, one of the things that he did was he translated the entire New Testament into German so that people, the common person, could read it. And all of a sudden, the common person was reading it, and they're, they're fact-checking the priests. And they were, discovered some errancies or some issues that they needed to address. You have to spend enough time in this book that it begins to saturate your heart and your mind. So that as you encounter things, whether it's in a book or a sermon or anything in the world, uh, that as you begin to encounter things, you begin to see it through the lens of Scripture. Stupid, funny, silly illustration of that. A few years ago, I had a, one of our cats threw up. I married the crazy cat lady. We all know that. One of our cats threw up. And, 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 and the first thing that went through my head, right, the first thing that went through my head was Proverbs 26.11. Like a dog that returns to his vomit, so is a man who returns to his, his sin. And I was like, Whoa. Like, I just looked at cat vomit, and I thought of scripture, right? I'm not saying you have to be, do that, but I want you to begin to see the world around you through scripture so that when you encounter anything in, in life, that you can go, well, what does the Bible have to say about that? Oh, okay, you know what, here, yeah, let me look at that, because that's what it talks, that, it talks about that here in this place. You know, sometimes people ask me, how do you know the Bible so well? I'm, honestly, I'm not that good at memorizing scripture, like, people talk about that. There's, there's people that are much better at memorizing Scripture than me. All I do is I'm just repetitious. I just, I'm in it all the time, right? And, and, and sometimes, you know, the danger is, as a pastor, you say, well, I'm in the Bible all the, all the time, but I'm really in the Bible to teach you guys. I'm in the Bible to teach the youth. I'm in the Bible to, to teach men in my men's group, right? But I, I recognized years ago that that cannot be my personal spiritual growth and edification. Like, I have to study the Scripture for myself, for my own growth, to look at it and say, Chris, what do we need to address between you and God based on what you're seeing in Scripture, right? Chris, what are you, what are you learning about God right now? Just for you personally, not for the church, but for you personally. You know, it's easy to look at this as a textbook. In fact, when I was in seminary, uh, we had a class, we had a guest teacher come in, and, and we, I mean, in seminary, you get this stack of books you got to read through every semester, and it's just, it's just overwhelming. Like, it's so many things you got to read. And, and he's talking about this, and he says, he says, hey, I want to add one more book to your list of books to read. And we're like, seriously? Do you know how many books we have to read already? And he holds up his Bible. And he says, read the Bible. He goes, sometimes as pastors, we forget that this book is a life-giving book for you personally, not just your church. And so that means the daily quiet time. In the mornings, you know, reading through the one year in a Bible um, every year, year after year with a group of friends. And we just encourage each other in that. It means reading books like these to help me understand, but always running it back through the filter of Scripture. We have to know what's in this book so that we know what's not in this book, right? 
Uh, Brandon and I were talking about that earlier this week, and there was an article that, that appeared in a number of Christian magazines about nine unbiblical statements that Christians believe. Uh, and they, they included, God helps those who help themselves. It's nowhere in the Bible. God wants me to be happy. Not in the Bible. We're all God's children. Not really. It's, I, I like that. It's a good sentiment. But not, no. Cleanliness is next to godliness. Maybe grandma said that one, right? Oh, here's, here's one that literally we hear all the time. And every time I hear it, I just, I want to vomit. I'm just going to be honest. God won't give me more than I can handle. That is a lie straight from the pits of hell. Because there are times in your life where you absolutely have been given more than you can handle alone. And what Satan wants to try and do is separate you from every other brother and sister in Christ so that you don't open up, you don't confess, you don't talk about it, and you, you put on your, your big boy pants and you say, I got this, and inside you're breaking apart. I mean, that, that's a whole other sermon another day. We all worship the same God, doesn't matter what religion. Bad things happen to good people. Well, it's true, but who's good? By biblical standards, we're all not good, Right? So it's good, it's a good sentiment, but it's not actually in the Bible. When you, die, when you die, God gains another angel. Sorry, angels are angels, humans are humans. Different destinies. We're all going to the same place when we die. Not really. The Bible's pretty clear, heaven and hell. We're not all going to the same place. And if, as followers of Jesus, we say we surrender to this book, that means we have to accept some things that make us uncomfortable. Some things that the culture would disagree with us on. The popular opinion would disagree with us on. I come from a, a history, my last church, uh, from a, a historical movement called the Restoration Movement. And it goes back to the, the 1800s. And it was a movement of uh, men and women of God who said, we want to get rid of all denominations. And we just want to go back to being Christ alone. Make Christ the, center, the centerpiece of everything that we do. And, and I love that historical sentiment. Thomas Campbell was one of the early pastors, and he said these words about Scripture. He says, where the Scriptures speak, we speak. And where the Scriptures are silent, we are silent. Friends, if we're to allow Scripture to speak where it speaks, and to not speak where it doesn't speak, then we have to know what's in this book. And the only way we can know this book is by being in it on a regular basis. I, I've been studying this book for 25 plus years and I'm still plumbing the depths of understanding who God is and how he wants me to live the Christian life. It is a never-ending process until the day I die and I meet Jesus. So, number one, we have to know the scriptures. Number two, and I think more difficult, we have to yield to the scriptures. Uh, we have to be willing to change our lives to fit scripture rather than changing scripture to fit our lives. There's a big difference there. I have to look at myself and say, the Bible says that this is how I'm supposed to act, live, breathe, think. So I'm going to change to fit this. Versus, you know, I really want to believe this, I really want to think this, and so I'm going to find scripture that fits that, that makes me feel good about what I believe. We don't have the option. If we bear the name of Christ and we say, I have surrendered yes to God, to Jesus, to scriptures, then we change ourselves based on what we read in scripture. Luther changed his theological position because of what he read in Scripture. And he encountered things that, that he just realized wasn't accurate based on the Bible. 
And so he began to change his positions, which is what led him to the Reformation. James says, do not merely listen to the word and so deceive yourselves. Do what it says. Anyone who listens to the word but does not do what it says is like someone who looks at his mirror in the, in the face, or his face in a mirror and after looking at himself goes away and immediately forgets what he looks like. But whoever looks intently into the perfect law that gives freedom and continues in it, not forgetting what they have heard but doing it, they'll be blessed in what they do. We can't claim to be followers of Jesus if we can't say we surrender and we yield to this book, which means that our understanding of many things is not our opinion, but is shaped by what we read and hear. Uh, look at our core doctrines as a church, uh, what we understand about God, the nature of God, what we believe about Jesus Christ and about the Holy Spirit. It doesn't matter what I think about that. It matters what Scripture says. Well, we think about uh, the Bible itself and the nature of mankind. We think about how to be saved. How do we, we enter into a right relationship with God? Uh, what, is, what about heaven and hell? We don't get to decide those things. The Bible has already decided those things. We are called to yield to them. And so it may be uncomfortable at times. It, it may be challenging at times. You know, we live in a world that would love to say Jesus is one of many ways to God, but he's not the only one. I read a statement on, surprisingly, Instagram um, this past week that was just really shattering. It said, Jesus would not have gone through the pain and torture of crucifixion if he was one of many ways. Wouldn't have happened. And so it's unpopular in our world today to say Jesus is the way to God. Only way. And yet, as followers of Jesus, this is what this book tells us. In fact, it's not just the book, it's Jesus. Jesus himself, John 14, 6, says, I am the way, not one of many, not one good option to consider. I am the way and the truth and the life. And then as if that wasn't enough, he goes on to say, no one comes to the Father except through me. And so any other religion, anybody, any other human being who rejects Jesus is not a Christian. Sorry, it's not going to happen. And is that unpopular in our world today? <sighs> Absolutely. And we can be jerks about that truth, let's be honest. Or we can say it with compassion and the depth of love that God would, has already demonstrated to us. Does that make sense? And if you want to talk about how to live as a follower of Jesus, I mean, I just looked at Matthew 5, 6, and 7, the Sermon on the Mount, three chapters in the first gospel, right? And it talks about this. It gives us direction on how to do these things, to understand what it means to be blessed. Many of us call ourselves blessed because we have food and a roof and a job and all those things. God's definition of blessed would be very different than that. It talks about what your purpose and your calling in life is. It talks about what it means to be right with God. It talks about how to handle your emotions and your sexuality and how to approach marriage and divorce. It talks about integrity and, and justice and mercy and how we treat people differently than us. It addresses social justice issues. It talks about spiritual disciplines of, of giving and fasting and praying. How do we connect with God on an ongoing basis? As if that wasn't enough, these same three chapters goes on and says, hey, you want to know how to handle your money? Here's how you handle your money. 
Here's how you handle your worldly possessions. Are you worrying about stuff? Are you anxious about stuff? These three chapters contain instructions on how to handle that. It talks about how to judge people outside of the faith. By the way, you don't. It talks about holding our brothers and sisters accountable, though, in Christ. It talks about blessings from God, the path to eternity, right theology and false teachers, and ultimately how to have a relationship with God. That's three chapters. Just three out of this book, and I'm still trying to figure out all of those things all the time, right? Continually discovering how to yield my life to what I discover in Scripture. I am a work in progress. If you follow me on Instagram, you see in my little bio thing, uh, follower of Jesus, husband of one, father of two, pastor of youth, stumbling along the way. I'm still figuring it out, friends. But, as followers of Jesus, we don't get the right to form our own opinions. If we said yes to God through Jesus, we said yes to the Bible in all of the comfortable and uncomfortable parts of it. So, being a follower of Jesus, no simple task. We talk about it all the time. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm one, I, I love emotions and I love using you know, laughter and tears and, and high energy and low, quiet moments to get you thinking about God, but I never want you to make a decision about God based on emotions because being a follower of Jesus is too challenging to let it be a, a, a mountaintop camp experience. So when people come to me and say, hey, what does it mean to be a follower of Jesus? I just had this amazing experience at church or at camp or on this mission trip or whatever. And I go, okay, let's talk about how are you going to love the unlovely? How are you going to stand up for Jesus in a world that doesn't like Jesus? I start to talk about these realities, the challenges that come with, with being a follower of Jesus. We're under attack. Dan Haney said it last week. And it's nothing new. The gospel of Jesus Christ has been under attack since the garden. Since Satan slithered up to Adam and Eve and said, did God really say? He's been saying those same words to us ever since. To be a follower of Jesus means to know what God says and to yield to it. Let's pray. Father, give us strength to yield. Strength to kneel down before you. That requires incredible strength, incredible trust, incredible humility to say, I don't have it all figured out, and my ways are not your ways. Father, would your spirit illuminate scripture for us? Give us a a passion for this book that burns in our souls. Father, give us a desire to, to, as, as rabbis used to say, to eat this book to just consume it every day, to let it be the primary source of spiritual nourishment that we receive in our lives. Father, we thank you for the gift of this book, that through it we can know you, that we can come to a right relationship with you, that we discover the depths of your love for us and the extent that you went to to save us. Thank you that in it we discover that this life is not all that there is, that there is life beyond death and that in, as a result of that we can have hope even in painful moments, even in challenging moments. I, I think of, of Ian Wallace right now, seventh grader who just got diagnosed with leukemia. 
I think of other people in the church who are struggling with cancer, people who are going through divorce and separation and financial trouble. Father, I think of, of people who are just in, in, in relational turmoil, spiritual turmoil, because they bought into the lies of this world. Father, would your spirit just take the word and pierce us down to the joints and the marrow in our bone that we can be known as people of the book. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. We all stand.